Okay, some good news and then some other news. So the good news is that in spite of last week's weather delay, uh, which we paused our homily series on the, the kerygma, in spite of that, we're going to be able to make it through. Uh, so the series is kind of perfectly timed, or it's meant to be perfectly timed for, uh, for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So the, the two parts that are there kind of are meant to go there. And we're going to make it work. So that's the good news. The other news, well, it, it depends on how you feel about long homilies, right? Because uh, we're going to have to combine a little bit this week, uh, last week and this week. Uh, the good news with that was that this week was supposed to be a shorter homily anyway. Uh, now it's just going to be a little bit longer. Okay, so what we're doing for Lent and Easter is, is we're, this, this series, uh, we're trying to give us, ourselves, a full picture of what God has done in the person of Jesus. Right, taking time to, to just sort of step back and, and acknowledge that, that for most of us, we don't really have a full picture of what God has done in the person of Jesus. We really only see Jesus and nothing else. And we, we, we don't understand that Jesus has entered into a story that's much bigger than him. And that if we only see Jesus, then ultimately our understanding of him isn't going to be all that powerful. It's not really going to be the good news that God intends it to be. But once we see the whole picture of what God has done called the kerygma, that's what that whole picture is called, the proclamation of the gospel. Once we see that whole picture, then the hope is that something would, would explode within us. God's grace would explode within us and actually change us in a real way. So that the, the whole picture, the, the kerygma, has four parts. The goodness of creation, sin and its consequences, God's response to sin, and our response to God. We spent, uh, prior to last week, we spent the two previous weeks looking at the first part of the kerygma, the goodness of creation. And I encourage you, if, if you weren't here, if you didn't get a chance to hear that, uh, I've got the... the, the website for the homilies on our outline. It's in the bulletin uh, so that you can go online and, and listen so you can get a full picture. Um, so anyway, so, so we spent just looking, looking at the, the magnitude of God, of who he is, his grandeur, his majesty, his glory, and all that he creates. But then zooming in on the human person, on you and on me, made in his image and likeness. And the uniqueness of what that is to be made in his image and likeness, made to represent him on earth, the only creature that's capable of doing that. We are his favorite ones, the ones that he loves the most, and he actually makes us, he creates us with a plan in his mind, and that plan is nothing short of becoming like him. He wants us to share in his divine nature. And in fact, we're made to become that, and if we don't become that, then we fall short of the goal that God has for us. So that was the first two weeks, the first, the first part of the kerygma. Now this week, we shift to the second part because a person could easily hear that, that, that goodness, right, of the goodness of creation. A person could hear this and be like, okay, great, that sounds great. God is one, he does everything freely, he does it from nothing, he creates everything, and he's so good, and we're so good, okay, that's great. Just look at the world and see that we're so messy, right? Like, that doesn't seem to fit with the first part of the kerygma. That's because the first part of the kerygma is not the only part. We haven't even gotten to the good news yet. This week, we're looking at the second part, which we can call the bad news, right? If the gospel is good news, we have to understand that first there's bad news. If you remember, I compared this whole thing to D-Day, right? When the Allies land on the beaches of Normandy in France, for the French citizens in 1944, this was incredible life-changing news to find out that people had come from thousands of miles away to fight for them, to sacrifice themselves for them so that they could be rescued. 
D-Day is only good news for the French citizens because their country had been destroyed by the Nazis, by Hitler and his evil regime. So too, when we talk about Jesus's arrival on earth, the good news of the gospel, it only truly makes sense if we understood, if we understand that something terrible, horrible, beyond comprehension has taken place before Jesus has come. Right? If he's come to save us, we have to understand what exactly it is that he's come to save us from. That's what the second part of the kerygma is all about. So this week, the hope is actually that it would be a bit heavy. The hope is that all of us would leave Mass today feeling a little bit heavy. Because we have to understand that the bad news is not just, it's not just bad, but it is horrific news. That's, that's the hope that we're getting at. Because what we find in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis is we find that we have an enemy That among all of God's creation, not all of God's creation is on board with God's plan to make us like himself. Genesis chapter 3, it begins by talking about how the serpent is the most subtle of all creatures that God has made. Other translations might say cunning. In, in, In Revelation chapter 12, it talks about how that ancient serpent is the deceiver of the whole world. This is a creature of God, so not as powerful as God, not as intelligent as God, but still an angel who is a a superior creature to the human person. So he is more powerful than us. He's more intelligent than us. He's not limited in the same way that we're limited. And he has one goal, and that one goal is to keep you from being faithful to God. Because he knows that if you and I are not faithful to God's commandments, if we break ourselves off from God who gives us life, then the only natural result of that is death. He knows that if he can keep us from being faithful to God, then ultimately you and I cannot become like God. This is his goal. And his goal, to accomplish that goal, he has to come to us being subtle and deceptive. Right? To be subtle, to be deceptive means I have, I have an idea in my mind that I know is false, but I want you to believe that it's true so that you do something that in hindsight, you're going you're gonna to wish that you didn't do it. That's what it is to be deceptive, to be subtle. This is who he is. Revelation chapter 12, it talks about his names, his name being Satan and the devil. Satan, that, mean, that name means accuser. He accuses God, and we're going to see this in a minute when we look more closely at Genesis chapter 3, but he accuses God primarily of not being good, of not caring about you. He accuses the people around you of not having your best interest in mind. And he accuses you yourself and me, myself, of not being good, not being capable of receiving the promises that God has for us. The name devil, it means divider. He seeks to divide as much as he possibly can, beginning with the family and working outward. He tries to divide husbands from wives and wives from husbands. He tries to divide parents from children and children from their parents. Tries to divide siblings, other family relationships. He tries to divide communities. He tries to divide churches. He tries to divide countries, as many things as he possibly can. Maybe you can think think of some examples in our world of how we're so divided as a people, maybe more than we've ever been in the history of humanity, more divided perhaps on every issue, it seems, even things that it seems like we should agree on, we find ourselves disagreeing and being in division about. This is all a work of the devil, of the person that Jesus himself calls the ruler of this world. He does it all because he wants to isolate us as much as possible in this place of doubt, wondering, I don't think I can trust anybody. 
even God, even myself. This is who he is. Now we want to look at his strategy. So if you brought your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses, verses, verse 1, and then uh, we'll read here. So it says, The serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? What's he doing here? He's out fishing. He knows he's more intelligent. He knows he's more powerful than the woman. And so he can easily trap her into a deception. Now, if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we see that God put the man in the garden. He gave gave him this shamar, this this charge to guard the garden, to, to care for the garden, to have dominion over it and all that is in it. And he said, you can eat freely from any of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. What does God give? He gives nothing but abundance to the man because God is good and he wants to care for his favorite creature. So he gives nothing but abundance, but he says, but this one tree, you got to trust me on this. Don't eat from this one tree. So God gives one command. And now the serpent comes and he takes that one command and he says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He takes the one command and he twists it. He manipulates it to try to get the woman to begin doubting God's goodness. How does the woman respond in verses two and three? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What happens? God didn't say anything about touching the tree. So what happens? The woman, she engages in the conversation. She engages with a manipulative, evil creature who twists God's commands and she repeats God's God's commands in a twisted kind of way. God gave one command before. Now she's repeating as though God gave two commands. Before she could say, no, he just gave us this one. Now you can sort of imagine the subtle thought and it's subtle and it's meant to be subtle, but you can imagine the subtle thought of the woman saying, God gave us all these commands. Before it was just one. She couldn't have possibly said that. Now he's giving us all these commands. We're not even allowed to touch it. She's adding to the commands of God, making it seem like God is more demanding than he actually is. You see this, it's a subtle thing, but it's getting her to begin to doubt God's goodness. It's beginning to get her to to think that maybe God's not actually there to care for her. How does it go? So then in verses four and five, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing? It's like he's saying, if God really loved you, he'd let you eat from that tree. But he doesn't really love you, and so he gives you all these commands. He's trying to limit you. He's trying to restrict your freedom. He's trying to hold you back from becoming the person that you really want to become. But good for you, you're smart enough. You can figure this out. You know better than him. You don't have to listen to all of his commands. Good for you. You're intel, right? He's flattering. He's accusing God of not being good, and he's flattering. This is his strategy. This is his strategy then. This is his strategy now. He casts God in suspicion. God is not good, and he does not care about you. 
So any command that he gives you, it's only because he doesn't really love you and he's trying to restrict your freedom. This is his strategy. Think about that in your own mind. How many times you have thoughts that are similar to this? Oh, I don't like this command. It seems like God's got it out for me. It seems like his church has it out for me. And so what happens? Well, this is what happens in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. This, my brothers and sisters, is called the fall or original sin, whichever term you want to use. It is the man and the woman. They are deceived, yes, but they allow themselves to be deceived into rebelling against the command that God gave to them which ultimately boils down to this. It boils down to the man and the woman thinking to themselves, I don't need God to tell me what is good and what is evil. I can figure that out for myself. I don't need him to tell me what is right and what is wrong. I don't need him to tell me what I should or should not do. I don't need him to tell me what's going to give me life and what's going to kill me. I can figure that out for myself. This is the root of sin then. This is the root of sin now. Just think to yourself, how many times you have thoughts that are like that, that are similar, that are saying, I know the Bible says this, but I don't have to do that. I know God's church says that I need to do this, but who's the church to tell me what to do? Who's God? Father talks about how we need to read the Bible, but I don't need to read it. God and I have this understanding that, that I don't need to follow this command or that command. This is the root of sin, which ultimately results in open rebellion against the God who gives us life, the God whose plan it is to make you and me like himself. And if we rebel against that God, there are consequences to that. Doesn't this make sense? If I cut myself off from the one who gives me life. Think about this. Think about cutting a branch off of a tree or off of a vine. What happens if you cut the branch off the tree? The branch is going to die because its life source is the base of the tree. So too, if we cut ourselves off from God who gives us life, and this is what we do when we sin, if we cut ourselves off from him, then we lose our lives. Maybe we don't die physically right away, but we die spiritually. And ultimately, if we're cut off from God who wants to make us like himself, then we will never be like him. But instead, we will be eternally separated from him. You see, there are consequences to sin. Among them, we can begin to look at them in Genesis chapter, seven, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 7 and 8, where it says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. These are two of the consequences. There are a couple more that I'm going to mention. So the first consequence of sin is that our relationship with God is broken. What happens? They hear him coming 
Before, when they saw the Lord God, they could walk with him in the cool of the garden, like they shared a kind of intimacy, a kind of communion with each other. Now, when they hear God come, what do they do? They hide. They're they're afraid to be in the presence of God. This is a consequence of sin, that our relationship with God is broken. Another relationship, the man and the woman's relationship is broken. They experience shame as they see each other's nakedness, as they see each other's vulnerability, and so they hide from each other. They make aprons so that they can cover part of themselves from the other. And this isn't just like a man and a woman kind of thing, but this is something that among human beings, our relationship with each other is broken. This is the source of all the division that we see in the world. A fruit of sin. Another relationship that's broken is man's relationship with the rest of creation. Remember, God created us to have dominion, to exercise a kind of stewardship, a care for creation. But now because of sin, chaos enters into the world. Now there's a fear of creation rather than a dominion over it. We begin to fear things like the weather or grumble against the weather. We begin to fear things like other animals or bugs. We begin to fear all kinds of different things that go on in the world. Or if we don't fear it, we grumble and complain against it, right? This is a broken relationship that God meant to have a kind of, a kind of harmony that now is no longer harmonious. And then last of all, man's relationship with himself is broken. You and I, we develop diseases, physical diseases like cancer and other things, mental and psychological diseases like anxiety, depression, whatever, those kinds of things. Spiritual diseases, like an inability to pray or an inability to understand spiritual things. Right? All kinds of things. Our relationship, our, we're like constantly rebelling against ourselves. And if we don't develop diseases, then just simply as we grow older, we, we develop aches and pains because we all know that we're going to die. And as we go towards that trajectory, what happens? Our body rebels against us. Where our body begins to fail, our minds begin to fail. This is all a fruit, a result, a consequence of sin. And the worst consequence of all is none of those, but it is another thing that is revealed in Scripture, it is revealed in the history of the church, and that is that you and I are sold into slavery to this serpent, a spiritual kind of slavery. St. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He says, All men and women are under the power of sin, We think of sin as like our actions or our inactions. Sin is something that I do or something that I fail to do. And that's true, that sins are those things. But Paul and the tradition of the church talks about sin in another kind of way, like sin with a capital S, like like a government or an authority that tries to exert itself over me. Right, we know this experience of government trying to exert, exert itself over us, right? This is what the power of sin does. We're sold into a spiritual slavery so that now we're stuck being dominated by our enemy. The church teaches actually this, that by our first parent's sin, the devil has acquired a certain domination over man. When our parents, our first parents committed that first sin, they unknowingly, right, they allowed themselves to be deceived, and so they unknowingly sold the human race into slavery to this ancient serpent so that now it's like he can dominate us and rule over us. 
Not that we're not still free to avoid sin, but that there's something within us that we just like, we can't help it in some ways. We can understand what Paul says when he says to the Romans, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Think about this. Is there anything in your life that you don't want to do, that you hate doing, you know that you shouldn't do it, but for some reason, you do it anyway. This is a result, a consequence of this spiritual slavery that we've been sold into and we can't get out by ourselves. What's more, it's not just that we're sold into the power of sin, it's that we're sold also into the power of death. That there's one certain thing about every single person in this church and that one single thing that is certain is that each one of us is going to die at some point in time. There's nothing that we can do to resist the oncoming moment of our death whenever it's going to be. We are utterly helpless against it because it is a power that rules over us. It's the one thing that we're all short of. There's an author that says this. Death is so great, so aggressive, so pervasive, and so militant a power that the only fitting way to speak of death is similar to the way one speaks of God. Death is the living power and presence in this world which feigns to be God. Do you hear this? The only fitting way to speak of death with a capital D is similar to the way that one speaks of God. It is a power that rules over us, constantly waiting for us, clinging to us. Another author speaking about this spiritual slavery says this, the controlling metaphor here is slavery and freedom. Either one lives in service to sin and remains in spiritual bondage, or lives in obedience to God and enjoys liberation from sin's captivity. It is a stark either or, no fence sitting, no third option. You see this, I am either bound, held a slave to sin, or I am obedient to God's commands and I'm free from slavery to sin. There's no middle ground here, it is one or the other. If I'm not in God's possession, if I'm not a slave of God, then ultimately I'm a slave of our enemy. Here's an image that I've heard that I think is very helpful. You have to let yourself use your imagination and again, to let this be a heavy thing. But you have to imagine yourself being captured by a human trafficker. Someone comes to you and they overpower you and I don't care how strong you think you are, this person overpowers you. They tie you up and they lead you into a dark room. And as they do so, they just laugh and laugh and laugh at you. And they tie you to a wall and they just say to you, you have no idea what I have in store for you. And you know that the rest of your life means being used and abused over and over and over and over and over again. And there's nothing you can do about it. And nobody's coming for you. This is an image of sin. It's meant to be heavy. Of course, we know what's coming. The next week, 
We know what's coming the week after that, and the week after that, we're going to spend three weeks talking about God's response to this. But before we get to the good news, we have to let ourselves feel the incredible heaviness of the bad news. Why? Because we too often think that sin is not a big deal. We too often let ourselves think that we don't actually need God to help us, when in fact, he's the only one that we truly need. Some questions for us as we finish here. What do you think about this? I know that there are probably some in here who don't actually believe in the devil, who don't believe in hell, or don't believe that people actually go there unless they're like Hitler himself. When the Bible, in fact, that Christians read speaks of a, a completely different reality. What do you think about this? Next. Can you notice the strategy of Satan in your life? Can you notice his accusations, his flattery, making you think that you're smarter than God, more wise than God? Can you recognize divisions in your life, temptations, discouragements, anything that's trying to hold you down from following God's commandments? Can you recognize those things? Because a big part of this is recognizing where the enemy is going to attack so that we can resist him. Because what we're going to find out over the next few weeks is that we do, in fact, by the power of God, have it within us to resist him. But before we can resist him, we have to recognize where he's at, where he's attacking us, where he's holding us down. Can you recognize those things? And then lastly, just reading for this week. So if you didn't grab an outline, if you didn't grab a bulletin, I encourage you to read one because there's actually a lot of reading for this week. To so read Genesis chapters 21 and 22. Exodus chapter 12, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 30, and John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37. And I know that's a lot of reading, but the week is pretty long, right? You can, you can probably find some time to read these passages this week. So that together we can prepare, be prepared next week to enter into the good news, and so that the good news can actually be powerful for us, that it can actually be better than D-Day was for the French citizens in 1944, but it can be something that, like, God's grace explodes within us. But before we get to that point, before we get there, let us let ourselves just be heavy this week to recognize that we have an enemy and that that enemy too often overcomes us and that we need a Savior.